The scripture reading for this morning is from Exodus chapter 3, but it's actually verses 1 through 14. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that these uh, aren't just stories that are myths, Lord, but they are real things that happen in real space to real people in real time. But ultimately, we're thankful that they point us to the great story of redemption and the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the most personal and powerful thing that we could experience. So, Father, may we be reminded of your gospel this morning. May we see you clearly, and may we be changed because of it. In Christ's name, amen. Many of you know I, I, I have the privilege of, of teaching uh, some undergrad courses uh, here at the university. And as part of the curriculum in one of the courses that I teach, we ask our students to do uh, a certain exercise to get them starting to think about God and what it means to uh, live a life of faith. And what we ask them to do is we ask them to uh, take a pen and a piece of paper and to draw a picture 
that represents uh, their relationship with God. Now, these are students that come from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of uh, faith walks and uh, all sorts of different stories. And most of them grumble and complain about having to do an exercise like this. And sometimes I feel very bizarre giving them this sort of exercise. But the discussion that comes out of it as they start to explain their pictures of what they drew always becomes a very, very interesting discussion. And what happens is often the pictures fall into really three different categories. Some students draw a picture of of them, and then they draw a picture of God who's above them and bigger than them and and someone that they can't really touch or or somebody they can't really uh, uh, get to. Some students draw a picture of themselves and God walking side by side with one another, holding each other kind of hand in hand as they journey through life. And the last category of picture you often see is people who draw a picture themselves and then some sort of flame or something on the inside of them, that God is inside of them and present with them. It highlights how each and every one of us sometimes tend to really see God in very, very different ways. Well, the picture that we get of God in this story this morning is a very powerful picture. As we saw last week, the the writer of the book of Exodus is interested in telling us a story. They're interested in telling us the story about how God's people that were enslaved to the Egyptians were now about to be miraculously freed from their enslavement due to the great power of God. It tells us this story that happened in history. But we also talked about last week about how this story is more of a theological history than really a textbook sort of history. It's a theological history in the sense that it tells us certain things about God. But it also tells us certain things about ourselves as well, the nature of God and also the nature of humanity. What I'd like to look at this morning is just a few things that this passage tells us. A few things about God arranging the rescue of his people behind the scenes. A few things about God's character, about our response and Moses' response, and ultimately about God's great plan of redemption. The first thing I'd like us to see is a little bit about God's character. Look at verse 2. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Our story tells us that Moses is is wandering out around in the wilderness as a shepherd. And he's wandering on this mountain called Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai, which plays a huge part later in this story. And he sees this bush. He sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And of course, all of us know what it's like to stare at a campfire, where simultaneously frightened by the power of the bush, but we're also uh, intrigued by it. We're drawn to it. And Moses was intrigued and drawn to this bush. And our passage tells us that as Moses moved towards this bush, that he took off his sandals because he recognized that this place was holy. That this place was made holy because God himself was present in this bush in a very unique way. Now, we throw around that term holy all the time. We use it in our vocabulary all the time for all sorts of different things. I always think of Phil Rizzuto calling, I think it's Yankee games, saying, holy cow. And, you know, we hear stories and we use that word all the time. But really, it has much more of a profound meaning than often we even realize. 
And actually what it does is it points to that first category of drawings that I see in my class often. Because the holiness of God means that God is above us. It means that he is greater than us. He's greater than our finite minds can really understand and even contain. He's set apart. He's unique. He's different than anything else in creation. But it also means that God is perfect. That there are no hidden faults to God. There are no past mistakes that are hiding in God's closet. There are no insecurities to him, no frailties to him, no inadequacies whatsoever. He is perfect in all things. He is perfect in his wrath. He is perfect in his anger. He is perfect in his justice. And he is perfect in his love. And he will not tolerate imperfection in his presence. Now, when Moses is confronted with the holiness of God, he is immediately frightened. He's immediately frightened for a lot of reasons. One is because, remember, God has been silent for 400 years up until this point. Many of his followers were beginning to doubt whether he even existed. They were wondering if he will ever come through on his promises. Moses had heard stories about the God of his grandfather and great-grandfather and great-grandfather, but he'd never, ever experienced him for himself. And now, all of a sudden, here is God in the presence of this burning bush. It's why in verses 13 and 14, Moses asks a very simple question of God. He says, who are you? What is your name? What am I supposed to tell people when they ask me who you are? And God says, tell them that my name is I am. My name is in Hebrew, it's called Yahweh, a name that is packed with all sorts of depth of meaning. You see this name I am, it speaks to several things. It says, it tells us that God is eternal. It tells us he existed from eternity all the way in its past And he will exist in eternity in the future. We who are time-bound creatures have a really hard time figuring that out. It tells us that he's unchanging, that there's no circumstance, there's there's nothing that changes his character. He's been the same from from eternity past and he will be the same in eternity future. Nothing changes him. He is constant. It tells us that he's self-existent. He doesn't depend on anybody else or any other thing or any other contingent circumstance for existence. He is self-defining and he is self-existent. He is uniquely independent and needs nothing outside of him for his existence. This holy God, this God who is far beyond what our minds can contain, is now confronting Moses at this burning bush. And Moses' response tells us a lot of things as well. Look at verse 4. It says, When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. When we stopped this story last week, we uh, we noticed that Moses had grown up as a pampered prince, uh, as, as the adopted son of Pharaoh in Egypt. But when this story opens, Moses is in a very different place. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's in the wilderness, and he's become a shepherd, uh, and he's completely isolated, and he's completely alone. And it makes us wonder, how did he get from this place of being the, the pampered prince of Egypt to now being alone in the desert as a shepherd? 
Well, chapter 2 that tells us then when Moses was right around 40, uh, he was still in that kind of pampered prince uh, part of his life. And he came upon an Egyptian, one of his fellow Egyptians, that was brutalizing a Hebrew. He was beating him, and Moses, in a fit of anger and a fit of rage, came to the defense of that Hebrew and ended up killing the Egyptian. And he was so fearful of people finding out that he buried the Egyptian in the ground. But of course, everyone found out about it. Pharaoh himself found out about it and, and, and was angry with Moses. And, and every relationship that he had had, every good standing that he had had with Pharaoh was now erased. And it was now gone. So Moses decides to go to his very own Hebrew people. Maybe they'll take him in now that he's become an outcast from Pharaoh. But even they reject him as well. So Moses leaves. At 40 years of age, he leaves Egypt. He leaves, Egypt, he leaves the Hebrew people because everyone in his life has now rejected him. He has no home and he has no people. So he flees into the wilderness to this place called Midian. He is now an outcast. He is now in exile. And while in Midian, he, he runs into a Midianite family and he ends up befriending this Midianite family and being married into uh, this family. And he becomes a shepherd. He becomes a shepherd, a nomadic shepherd that cares for sheep day in and day out. No longer is he this pampered prince of Egypt. Now he's a shepherd that cares for smelly animals that don't do what he wants them to do. And he does this for 40 years. For 40 years, he is a shepherd amongst these nomadic people living the majority of his life in isolation with no one to talk to and no one to be around at all. Gone are all the memories of his own people, the Hebrew. Gone are all the memories of the Egyptians. And he's now, being, being, he's now settling into his retirement. He's come to the realization that this is going to be his life now. This is what he is going to do. This is his calling and this is how he is going to end his days until his whole life is disrupted when he confronts God in this burning bush. And when he does, everything about his life changes. And now at the age of 80, God tells him that he is going to be the instrument in which God uses to free his people from their bondage. Now, you'd like to think Moses, when he gets this call, responds very courageously and graciously and accepts this call of God with no sorts of, uh, with no sorts of apprehension. But the reality is Moses' response is actually a mess. His response is a mess. Don't think Charlton Heston from The Ten Commandments. Think more like Rick Moranis' character from The Ghostbusters. That is Moses' response. He is an absolute mess and has a lot of complex emotions about what God is telling him. You see, he's a mess because, for one, he's confronted with a holy God. Often in the scriptures, when people are confronted with the holiness and the greatness of God, they immediately become aware of their imperfections. They immediately become aware of their sins and their inadequacies and whenever you and I even are, reflect on the fact that God is holy and perfect, the best response for us is to immediately be aware of the fact that we are not. It's why Moses said he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses immediately becomes aware of his own personal lack of holiness, of his sin and his frailty. 
This really is the only true response that we can have as, as in this path of faith when we think of God's holiness. The prophet Isaiah in, in Isaiah 6 was confronted with God's holiness and his response was, woe is me, I am undone, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. When Moses' eyes beheld the glory and the holiness of God, he immediately becomes aware of his own inadequacies and sins. And, exactly, and this is actually why many in our culture are very deceived about the true state of their lives. Many people, when they think about their relationship with God and, and what it means to ac- have access to God or have access to heaven, they think they actually have a leg to stand on in the presence of God. They think their spiritual resume is, is good enough in order to gain his acceptance. They think that their good ways have, their good deeds have outweighed their bad deeds just enough so that they can gain admittance to God and into heaven. But they are deceived into thinking that their goodness or their righteousness is enough because any time anyone in the scriptures was confronted with the holiness of God, no matter how righteous they thought they were, they were undone because of the holiness of God. The same is true for you and I. And I think that's why Moses' response to God may be the most honest and may be the most appropriate when he says, here I am. This is me. This is who I am. You know, one of the things I love about Baltimore is that uh, we are often honest about our mess. We often look at our city, and, and nobody looks at Baltimore and says, we live in the perfect city. Our city is full of, of, of great things, of quirkiness. Have you ever tried to explain Hunfest to somebody that doesn't live in Baltimore? It's impossible. You can't. Uh, we, it's, it's a quirky city. I mean, the police had to kill a, a bull that was running on Charles Street this week. And actually, there's an outline of the bull on Charles Street, I think it is now, after the bull has been killed. This is what it means to live in Baltimore. We're quirky. We're weird. There's all sorts of mess to us. And we're open about it. This is who we are. Now, if anybody outside of the city criticizes, criticizes us, that's not allowed. We can, we can be critical of our own mess, but nobody else outside of the city can. It's one of the things I love about Baltimore. We, we are who we are. And we're open about it. And there's some, some, sometimes there's an arrogant tribalism that comes to that. Well, what you see in Moses is not arrogance, but you do see an honesty about who he is. About coming before God and saying, this is who I am. I have nothing to offer you. And really, this is an essential part of what it means to live this life of faith. Because when we come to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when we come to this gospel for the first time, we come to it understanding that we have nothing to offer God. We have no leg to stand on. We are sinners that are in desperate need of His grace and His mercy. We have nothing of our own that can make, us, make Him love us. Nothing of our own that makes us deserving of His grace. We bear in our lives the damage and brokenness of sin, and it's why we need His grace so desperately. Moses was a mess because he was confronted with the holiness of God. But he was also a mess because he was given a call that he simply did not want to do. 
He was given a call that he did not want to do. God tells Moses that, I want you, Moses, to be this instrument that I'm going to use in order to free my people from their slavery. You know, often when my wife and I tell our kids to do certain things, as many of you who are parents know, they don't always like to do them. One of the things our kids really, really don't like to do is to clean their room. Our two boys share a room, and often that room is an absolute mess. So we tell them to go and clean their room. I know it sounds cliche, but it's something that we do. And often, Beck and I look at ourselves, and we shrug our shoulders and say we give up on having them to do it. But sometimes we have some resolve, and we say, go clean your room. And when we do that, all the excuses start to flow from our children. They're actually quite adept at giving excuses. Things like, it's not my mess, my brother made the mess, so it's his responsibility to clean it up. Or, I can't reach my drawers to put my clothes in them. Or, I'm too tired, it's been a long day for me to clean my mess. Or, the best response is, what mess? This is the way we actually like it. But at the very end of the day, at the very end of the day, when we tell our boys that they have to clean their room, they just have to do it. No matter what the excuses are, in the end of the day, we'd say, just go clean their rooms. Well, in some ways, this is Moses in our story, to God's call to him. He says in chapter 3, God, who am I? I can't do this. I can't do this thing that you are calling me to. He later says, Pharaoh's going to reject me. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. And the Hebrew people aren't going to listen to me either, God. So that's why I can't do this. In chapter 4, he says to God, but God, you've picked the wrong guy. I'm not eloquent. I can't speak well. I can't do this thing that you are calling me to do. And then the most honest thing that Moses says is in chapter 4 where he just says, God, I just don't want to do it. Please go and find someone else to do it. But God, in the end, very graciously says to Moses, he says, no, you're going to do it. But take heart. I am going to be with you in the middle of it. So Moses becomes this reluctant deliverer. One commentator says his reluctance seems to be a cross between true humility, an appreciation for the difficulties that will confront his role, and simple stubbornness. In other words, Moses is a complex mess, full of emotions, full of anxieties, and full of inadequacies. And really, in reality, he is no different than you and I. When I was in high school, I realized that I felt like God was in some ways calling me into some sort of ministry. I knew that at a very young age, probably towards the end of high school and early college. But one thing I knew that was the most crystal clear thing I knew is I knew that God was calling me to ministry, but I knew that he would never, ever, ever call me to be a senior pastor of a church. Never, ever. When I went away to a Christian college in order to to study the Bible, I said, I'm here to study the Bible and to go into ministry, but I will never be a senior pastor, I promise. And my friends that wanted to be senior pastors, I would look at them and I would say, good luck with all that, because that is not me. My wife, when she went away to a Christian college, said, I'm going to go away to Christian college, but I refuse to marry a man who will become a pastor because I will not be a pastor's wife. And then, of course, when I went to my first church position, I was hired as a youth director. And I said to the pastors when I got there, I said, 
I will be your youth director, but don't have any ideas ever about me becoming a senior pastor because I won't do that. And then, of course, we know that God has an amazing sense of humor when it comes to that sort of thing. And I think part of the reality of of my own heart, when I looked at those senior pastors, I said, I could never be that guy. I could never do that because I know my own heart. And I know what a messy, complex bundle of emotions I am on the inside. And God could never call me to do that, much less use me to do that. And I think that's exactly how Moses felt in this story. So that's why God fills Moses in on his plan, and he begins to fill him in on how all this will happen. Verse 8, God says to him, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. See, what God is saying is, he's saying, Moses, I'm not just this holy God who dwells in unapproachable light up in heaven, who's far above you and far greater than you can imagine, but I am the God who is going to come down. I am the God who is going to walk with you through this. See, the Moses, the Moses story, the Exodus story, is really a story about God's work of redemption. It's a story about how God comes down in time and space and rescues his people from their enslavement. But it points to an even greater story. It points to a greater work of redemption that God does after another 400 years of silence when God comes down in the form of Jesus Christ in order to rescue you and I from our enslavement to sin. You know, the Gospel of John is a unique gospel, if you've ever read it. And there's multiple statements in the Gospel of John. They're called the I Am Statements. They're statements in which Jesus was speaking and talking about himself and explaining who he was to his people. And he consistently said, I am, and then went on to several other things to describe who he is. And each one of those was supposed to register in the minds of those that heard it in that day what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I am not only the God who came down, but I'm also the God who came down to Moses. I am the God that was in that burning bush. I am the God who freed the Egyptians. I am the God who parted the Red Sea. But the most powerful I am statement that Jesus said came in John chapter 18 when the guards came to arrest him in the garden. It says this in verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. You see, what we know about this story is the great I am of the Old Testament. The great Yahweh, the great, the mighty God who freed the Egyptians allowed himself to be shackled by human prisoners. He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be brought up on trial and ultimately to be executed so that you and I could experience the only rescue possible for our sins. And he did it for people like you, for people like Moses, for people like me, who are a complex people full of sin, inadequacies, and inadequacies, for people that are full of of, of frailties, for people who are absolute messes. 
So the question I have for all of us this morning is, if you had an opportunity to sit and draw what your picture of your relationship with God is here this morning, what would you draw? Because the scriptures tell us that he is a God who is holy and who is far above us and who is far greater than us. But it also tells us that he calls you and I to follow him and to follow his call on our lives. But he doesn't call us to do it alone. He's a God who came down and who walks alongside of us. The scriptures also tell us that he is a God who dwells inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all this was made possible because he came down in the form of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin. We, like Moses, are messy people. We are frail. We are sinful people. But we desperately need his grace. And when we recognize our sin, when we recognize our need for his grace, then he calls us to himself and breathes life into our dead souls. And then, and then he calls us to be instruments of his kingdom in this world.